If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel consists of 48 chapters. We are now at chapter 40, so we're coming to the last portion of this book. And the theme that runs through these chapters, actually began earlier, is the theme of restoration. For most of this book, Ezekiel has been talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And that happened. We read about that in chapter 33, verse 21. And from chapter 34 on, we begin to hear a more sustained message regarding the restoration of Israel. There have been snippets here and there of hope, but now it becomes more of a a consistent, sustained message. It includes the fact that the Messiah will be the new shepherd. That's in chapter 34 that the Lord will give a new covenant of peace. Then we have in chapter 37 the well-known passage, the vision of the valley of dry bones, in which the impossible takes place. Ezekiel preaches to the dry bones and they reassemble into human beings but without breath. And then Ezekiel preaches to the four winds and they come and these beings, these human beings, now have breath. Last week, We saw that in spite of restoration, there will be seemingly overwhelming and evil opposition seen in the person of Gog from the land of Magog and his allies as well. We see this also in Revelation chapter 20. But both in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 20, the Lord will destroy that opposition. And this is the hope that his people have. On a side note, I mentioned in the sermon, but also um, on the, uh, the blog on the church uh, Facebook page, the problem we often have, what trips us up with prophecy, is that we tend to think in terms of prediction rather than promise. And it really skews how we read and understand certain passages. So here, just by way of review, let me ask you, uh, which of the two would you rather have? Someone in your neighborhood who makes predictions about the future or a friend who keeps his or her promises. Perhaps it is our limitations as human beings that we have a fascination with the future. We want to have a sneak peek behind the curtain, a glimpse into the future. But as I pointed out last week, there are significant differences between prediction and promise. And one is that promise involves a personal relationship. So the question I just asked earlier is, it involves friendship. Is there someone in your neighborhood who makes predictions? Do you have a friend who makes and keeps his or her promises? The Lord is the God of Israel. He's not a tribal God. He's a king overall. But with Israel, he has a personal relationship. They are his people. He is their God. And we see at the end of chapter 39, then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. So God makes promises to his people. He does, in fact, make predictions about those who are not his people. There is no relationship there to speak of, except he is the creator and they're his creatures. But with Israel, he has entered into covenant with them. Today we begin chapter 40. And I hope that the theme of restoration will be clear. 
The book of Ezekiel, back in chapter 1, opens with the vision of the divine glory. Then in the second vision, chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel is told of the coming destruction of the temple. The reality is that the glory of the Lord, his presence, was going to leave the temple. And that's what happens. But in chapter 40, we come full circle, in which Ezekiel is shown a new temple. The old one has been destroyed. And the glory of the Lord returns. Remember, the glory of the Lord had left the temple. Now there's a new temple, and the glory of the Lord returns. I know I've said this more than once in this series, but this is a difficult part of Ezekiel. Okay? Um, And there are different views as to how we are to understand these chapters. And let me just mention four. Um, The first is a literal approach, to read these chapters. um, And I'm not going to read them because it's quite extensive. I would encourage you to do so. But it is seen that Ezekiel has shown a blueprint for the new temple, okay, which was to be built when the exiles returned to Jerusalem. He's given building specifications, a lot of detail is given. Ezekiel, being a priest, he's from the tribe of Levi, this would really resonate with him because, you know, as a Levite, as a priest, if the temple's gone, it's as though he is out of work. Um, and so I think these, these, these visions really resonate with Ezekiel the priest more than Ezekiel the prophet. But he is a prophet. He's been commissioned to be a prophet And so as one commentator put it, this passage does not involve an architect, but a prophet whose department is not hands, but the heart. So I would say that the literal approach is, it doesn't work. And I'll give you another reason in a minute why it doesn't. The second way to interpret this is the symbolic Christian view. That in fact, what Ezekiel sees in these chapters is fulfilled in the church. Um, And certainly if you read Ezekiel, these last chapters, and then go and read the book of Revelation, you're like, wow, I've, I've heard this before. What we, John says in Revelation very much ties into um, what it comes from what we read in Ezekiel. Um, but I think it's overstating the case to say that this is, in fact, a symbolic Christian view. Um, Ezekiel is speaking to people in his day. He isn't writing this for people hundreds of years, thousands of years later. He's writing for the people uh, who are in exile with him. The third point of view is the dispensationalist view, which is a variant of the first two. It holds that, in fact, this temple will be built in the future. The sacrificial system will be reinstated. And what we find in the Old Testament, the festivals, the blood sacrifices, the priesthood, worship, this will all happen again. Um, at least two big problems with this. Um, the first is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. So why would you have the Lord Jesus come? He has come. He's going to come again. And somewhere, either before he comes back or after he comes back, we're going to go back to sacrificing animals again. That really does not make sense. Okay. Secondly, um, One of the things we are told about the temple, we won't see it today, but Lord willing, next week, is that the river of life flows out of the temple. Um, I don't know how you build a temple 
and have the water of life, the river of life flowing from it. I don't think it's to be taken literally. So the fourth view, which is the one that I would suggest to you, you know, we saw it last week, um, that Gog of Magog um, is in fact a symbol of overwhelming evil opposition. Okay. In fact, as we saw last week, the name Gog and Magog, those names, they come from Genesis chapter 10. That's millennia before. Okay. So they, in fact, symbolize something. They symbolize opposition. In this last portion of Ezekiel, the lessons given and the points being made are, first of all, the perfection of God's plan for his restored temple, which is expressed, in fact, his desire for perfection among his people is uh, expressed in the symmetry of the temple. I mean, we are giving almost mind-numbingly detail about this, but God has a plan as he restores his people. Secondly, the centrality of worship in the new age is expressed, we will see this again next week, and the scrupulous detail about how the sacrifices are to, being done, are to be done. We have the abiding presence of the Lord in the temple that is among his people. We have the blessings that will flow from his presence, the river of life. And then we have the orderly allocation of duties. There are things we are to do as God's people. This is the approach that we will take, and I hope as we go through it will make sense to you. The section begins with Ezekiel, who is in Babylon, in exile, being transported in the spirit to Jerusalem, which is now in ruins. But he's taken to a high mountain, and now he sees a restored temple. Interestingly enough, not a restored Jerusalem, but a restored temple. The date is worth noting. Um, look, if you would, at the first three verses um, or the first verse at least in the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month in the 14th year after the fall of city on that very day the Lord of the hand was upon me and he took me there that is Jerusalem in visions of God he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city he took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The book of Ezekiel opens with, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of exile. So what we're looking at now is 20 years later. It's the 25th year of exile. Um, Ezekiel is living near the Kibar River, which is outside Babylon, and there the Lord appears to him. Now, 20 years later, in the 25th year of exile, the Lord appears to him once again. And it is on the 10th of the month, the beginning of the year. Um, I see this as more significant than the years. I mean, there's 20 years between, that's, that's fine. Um, but it is the first month of the year and the 10th day of that month. So what's the big deal? Um, Exodus chapter 20, the Lord said, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. 
tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for his household. This is the preparation for Passover. It is the beginning of a new era for Israel. For four centuries, they've been in Egypt. We don't know how much of that, but for a long period of time, they were enslaved, and now they are going to be liberated. They are going to be set free from the bondage of slavery. It is the redemption of Israel, the 10th day of the first month. There's another event, and this is in Joshua chapter 4. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. That is the first day and the first night spent in the promised land, the 10th day of the first month. So both in Exodus and in Joshua, it's the beginning of a new era. It is the beginning of a new age for the people of God. Israel is set free from slavery Now they are set free from wandering in the desert for 40 years. Now they settle in the promised land. And as we read the passage in Ezekiel 40, we have a sense that something new is going to happen. Something new is happening. And I read the first three verses. Now look at verse number four. The man said to me, this is the man who had the linen cord and measuring rod, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. This is like Revelation chapter 1, in which John is told, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So here is the beginning of the tour of the temple, and it will go on for a number of chapters. Um, with details which might seem repetitive and almost mind-numbingly, uh, just, just so much detail. One is reminded of the passage in Exodus where Moses is given instruction on how to build the tabernacle and how many things are going to be here and how many rings here and all these different things. Like, okay, but There's a big difference here. Okay. Moses is given instruction on how to build the tabernacle. Here, the temple is already built. Ezekiel is coming to something that, in fact, has already been built. It's the finished product. And he is given a tour, given the tour by a man who has a measuring rod. Um, and he measures everything in this new temple. And I think some would want to know what... What, are the, what is the significance? What is the interpretation of these various things? And I think that would miss the point of what is being made. The insistence on material details is important. I will mention this in the conclusion. There is a materiality to this, okay? And that is really important. It points to the reality of our being embodied creatures, something we tend to lose sight of. So even when we think of life after death, oftentimes if we're not careful, we imagine that we'll be sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp, somehow losing sight of the fact that we will still be embodied creatures. More on that later. From a distance, it looks like a city. It is... 500 cubits square, that's a little less than 300 yards each side 
is 300 yards long. There are gatehouses which are not intended to repel an attack, but rather to keep out the people who are not supposed to be there. Um, the entrances, there are four entrances, are to be for the pilgrims. Actually, I think there are three entrances. Uh, for pilgrims, for those on procession, um, and it is intended to keep out those who are not clean, the unclean, ceremonially unclean. There's an outside wall, the 500 cubits, 500 cubits, 500 cubits. And there's a second wall. It's inside, and this separates the outer court from the inner court. And it goes on and on and on. The various gates, the portico, the rooms for preparing sacrifices, the rooms for the priest, and more. Um, what is the point? What are we to make of these chapters? Ezekiel is instructed simply to report the facts of the accommodation, not to say, Israel, this is the blueprint, this is when we go back, this is what we're supposed to build. Or, Ezekiel is not told by the Lord, I will enable Israel to build this. Okay? The building will just be there. And as we will see again, Lord willing, next week, the river of life flows out of it. Israel can't build a temple and have the river of life flowing from it. Only God can do that. Um, what Ezekiel, these visions are, he, he is to report back to the exiles and to prepare them for a wonderful, wonderful gift. And what is that gift? Well, if you would look at chapter 43, verse number 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. By the way, this is where the tour began. Okay, so we've come full circle. East gate, we're back at the east gate. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roaring of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. By the way, these visions... Chapter 1. Okay. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings and their high places. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost next, or beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, and its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them, so that they may be faithful to its design and follow its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area of the top of the mountain will be most holy, such as the law of the temple. 
Some things to note here. First of all, Ezekiel has had similar visions. The vision he saw was like what he, uh, he had when God came to destroy the city. That's chapter 9. And the vision he had by the Kibar River, um, chapter 1, but also chapter 9. And he fell face down. Um, this is the second thing. His reaction here in chapter 43 is the same as it was in chapter 9 and chapter 1. That is, he falls face down. This is something we find in scripture, but sadly not in the modern world. There is a deep reverence, a fear of the Lord, that when people are faced with the presence of God, they fall on their face, and in some cases, as though dead. We are marked by a casualness that is not right. I call it the Kramer effect. If you've ever watched Seinfeld, the way that Kramer sort of just sort of scoots into the, into the room, not knocking or anything, just sort of comes in. And oftentimes in our prayer, this is what we do. We just, here I am ready to pray. Um, no sense that I am coming into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. In Revelation 1, when John, the beloved, who was seen as the one closest to Jesus, when he has a vision of the Lord Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's not like, hey, bud, you're back. Um, there's this deep reverence. And we see this in Ezekiel's. You think, Ezekiel, you've been having these visions now for 20, 20 years. Um, aren't you used to it now? I mean, no. The presence of God should fill us with a dread and reverence for who God is. The third thing we see here is that the temple was constructed and prepared for the glory and eternal, that is forever, presence of the Lord. This is what chapters 40, 41, and 42 are all about. God says, this is where I will live among the Israelites forever. In chapter 10, the glory of the Lord had left the temple. You have a building, but, the, but God is not there. Um, by the way, in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departs through the east gate. Chapter 43, the glory of the Lord returns through the east gate. He will dwell among his people forever. David wrote centuries before this in Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. In 1 Kings 8, when Solomon is praying a prayer of dedication for the first temple, Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. It is to represent the presence of God. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why the Israelites, the people from Judah, are devastated by the destruction of the temple, because that's where the presence of God was. And if the temple is gone, does that mean his presence is gone? Well, actually, his presence had been gone for some time. But now there is the promise of restoration. 
the fourth thing that I see here is that there is to be, the temple is to stand apart. There's to be a separation from the temple and other things. If you look at verse number eight, when they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my name by their detestable practices. Um, in chapter eight, Ezekiel is shown all the wickedness, all the idolatry. I mean, they're actually worshiping idols on the temple grounds. And in that vision, it keeps talking about the north gate. It's like, why the north gate? I mean, the east gate is where the spirit of God, the glory of God's coming in. Why the north gate? Because that's the gate between the temple and the palace where the king lives. And what God is saying is, listen, the way you guys did it, there's only a wall between that which is holy, the temple, the presence of God, and the palace of the king. Um, seeming to indicate that the temple was not seen as holy. The fifth thing we see here is that the purpose of the vision of the temple is explained. Look at verse number 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Not so that they may build it, but they may be ashamed of their sins. In verse 11, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. What does this mean? Well, it comes to the last thing. And that is the law of the temple. Verse number 12, this is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy, such as the law of the temple. And then immediately, and we're not going to look at it, but um, in verses 13 to 17, we're given the dimensions of the altar where the sacrifices are to be done. In verses 18 to 27, Ezekiel is given instructions about the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the atonement offerings, the fellowship offerings. Um, what are we to make of this? This is very similar to what we read in the book of Leviticus. The point is, it is the Lord who specifies what is holy and how things are to be done. Again, in the modern age, we're far too casual. We think we can just sort of make it up as we go along and then somehow baptize it by saying, well, I'm just going to let the Spirit move me. Um, God is very specific in how his people were to sacrifice and worship him. There is one problem, though, in this chapter that I find. Uh, verse number 27. You know, if they do all these things, okay, then I will accept you, declares the sovereign Lord. This almost sounds like salvation by works, that God will accept us if we do the right things. In S Psalm 51, David wrote, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. One should not assume after reading Ezekiel 43, oh, if we do these sacrifices just right, then God will accept us. No. In Amos chapter 5, we read, I hate... I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteous like a never, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What the Lord desires is a contrite heart, that we act with justice, that we live obedient and righteous lives. Going back to Psalm 51, I stopped at verse number 17. Verse 18, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It is the right heart, the right attitude that God calls for. And then he will be delighted with sacrifices. Now chapter 44. And it opens with these words, the first three verses. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east. And it was shut. Okay, this is the one that the glory of the Lord had come through. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. He is to enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. Okay, let me get this straight. No one can come in, but this prince is allowed to be there. Who is, in fact, this prince? Well, in chapter 34, a promise is given. Part of it we know because we know John chapter 8, the good shepherd. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. This is Jesus. He is a descendant of David. He is the good shepherd. It's the next verse that we might struggle with. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And in chapter 37, after the valley of the vision of dry bones, it's fleshed out. My servant David will be king over them and he will, they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then all the nations will know that I, the Lord, made Israel, or make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. These are all passages that point to the coming Messiah. He is of the line of David. It's not David that's being spoken of here, but one of his descendants. And he is going to be a shepherd for all of Israel. And he is the prince who alone is allowed in the temple area. He comes in through the portico. He is allowed. No one else can do this. The presence of God has come in and the prince is there. And why is that? Because he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the shepherd. He is the prince. He is the one that God would send. I tried to fit this into the Facebook blog, but I will mention it here. Uh, From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. All the promises, and again, I, I won't say predictions, I don't think that's right, it's the promises. All the promises that God has made, the prophecies we find in the Old Testament, they point to the Lord Jesus, all of them. And what we see in this seemingly difficult passage in Ezekiel is all pointing to the Lord Jesus. Do you remember, this is in John chapter 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And his listeners scoffed and are like, are you kidding? We've been working on this temple for 46 years. It's Herod's temple. It was sort of a miniature of what Ezekiel saw. Who does he think he is? John tells us, but the temple he spoke of was his body. Ezekiel's vision for all the details, mind-numbing details, there is a point to his vision, and that is the sheer materiality, the physicality of the temple. Like the incarnation, the physicality of the incarnation, in 1 John, John opens his epistle, that which was from the beginning, that's eternal, that's God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. It's like, what is all this stuff about the temple and all the cubits and this and that and the walls and this? It's the physicality, the materiality of it. Almost as much as to say, one could take out this cubit, this measuring rod, and measure the Lord Jesus. Because he was human. He was there physically. And he represents God's presence among his people. God with us, Emmanuel. Oh, you mean like God with us in the temple of Ezekiel's vision? Absolutely. So all of the difficulty I would say with these passages, I think there's still difficulties. I don't have all the answers. But I think the solution is in the person of Christ. They're all pointing ahead to the time when God would come in human flesh. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, the spirit is poured out and God's presence is here with us. I think we, we just miss the boat so often. First of all, looking for prediction. Like, boy, what, what do all these numbers mean? You know, this, these measurements, missing the point. But then also the physicality of it. Um, we almost think of the physical or the material as evil, which is not a Christian view. Um, we think of the spiritual only as good. Again, not a Christian view. The glory of God came in the person of Christ. John said we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. The glory of God has come and he is among his people. Um, but I think sometimes we're like Samson. 
after Delilah shaved his head, Samson's like, you know, she's like, the Philistines are coming. And he got up and he didn't even know the spirit of God had left him. Let us pray for God's grace, his mercy, that he would continue to live among his people and the glory of God would be seen through us. By the way, 2 Corinthians, the way that the glory of God is seen through vessels of clay, jars of clay, is when there are cracks in those jars. When we admit our fallenness, our sinfulness, we don't try to cover up the cracks as though somehow we're perfect. No, it's in our brokenness that the glory of Christ shines through. And Lord, may that be so. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. As difficult as it may seem, can't help but wonder if some of the difficulties of our own making. We forget that it's all of scripture points to Christ. All of it. The Old Testament points ahead, the New Testament points back. But our interest seems to be elsewhere. We want to peek behind the curtain. We want to know what's going to happen in the future. Use prophetic passages as sort of a divining rod to tell us what's going to happen, who's going to fight whom. Somehow we have pushed the Lord Jesus aside. He did come. He lived among us. And if we were to be alive back then, we would say with John that we have heard him, we have seen him, we've looked upon him, our hands have touched him. He really was there. And as Ezekiel is confronted by all the details of this temple, they point ahead to the coming of the Messiah. The prince who alone is allowed to enter because he is in fact the glory of God. And we certainly see this in the Mount of Transfiguration. I imagine that every age has its own temptations its own worldview that pulls us away from Christ. Ours is marked by casualness, lack of reverence, and I think also a a downgrading of the physical, the material. The reality is we are body and soul. Christ came to save both. Otherwise, why is there a resurrection for a body's not important? But he who came and lived among us, who is our brother, gave his life that we might have life. And one day he will return and we will have glorified bodies. And indeed, his glory will be among us forever. 
I thank you for this passage of Ezekiel. And may it, in fact, point us to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday to worship you. Thank you for all that you've done for us in the past week. And we think particularly of Ori and that wonderful report. Bless their time together with Grant as he's home with them. For each of us, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we be conscious of the presence and the glory of the Lord being with us every step of the way in the coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.